All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 518. It's me and Jason. We're going to cover the history of Freemasonry. And just so you know, I would say 98% of what we're about to cover are their claims, their words. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a hot good morning. And indeed, this is predominantly coming from what are supposed to be Freemasons writing in their own books. Well, the reason we have to put that out is because whenever we do something like this, uh, the comments are going to blow up with someone who knows something we don't, which is well and good. But I think you should realize that we are literally citing what they are claiming is correct. And we all know how far that goes. It'll give us a, a point of reference. Maybe we should leave it at that. But we know how truthful this organization is. Anyhow, uh, anything you want to talk about or you want to just jump in here? So most of this will be coming either from books written by Freemasons, articles written by Freemasons on their websites, or the actual websites themselves, like the official lodge pages. I took stuff from that as well. Now, whether that's supposed to be truthful to uh, outside eyes, that's up to you to decide because neither Crow nor myself are Freemasons. So we couldn't 100% guarantee that this is exactly what they say in the lodges, but this is what's available for us to use. So that's what we're presenting to you. You know, it's a strange thing in my lifetime. There's been a shift. When I was young, it was very common for so many blue collar and white collar workforce people to be Masons or Elks or Rotary Club. Uh, When I used to drive across country when I was young, Almost every city that you came into, even the smaller ones, you know, those little signs they have and all the little society like the the Elks wheel and the, you know, you see them all. Uh, You don't see that as much as you used to. And it seems like membership is not as common as it once was. But anyhow, uh, I think your father was a Freemason. Both of my grandparents, uh, my mother's father was a Freemason and my dad's father was a Freemason. But other than that, I'm more than a generation away from it. You are one generation. I'm two. Right. My father was a Freemason. My stepmom was in the uh, Order of the Eastern Star. I've got cousins and things like that who are still in it, but they're all older. I don't see it a lot. I occasionally hear about it, but for the most part, I don't see very many younger people getting into it for whatever reason. Well, it's a strange thing. Think about this. So in my family, uh, my grandfather, who died when I was, I mean, in the 70s, I I probably wasn't even 10 yet. I might have been 10, somewhere around there when my grandparents on my dad's side died. But I never was aware of Freemasonry or anything else. Uh, I found out about it when I was much, much later. But there was never any, well, son, you know, you're my son and we keep it in the family. I'm a member of this thing. You should be a member of this thing. There was never any of that. And it sounds the same for you. Did your father ever talk to you about this or say, hey, I do this thing, you should do this thing? Absolutely not. And that's generally the way it goes. He always had his ring on, which I now own because he passed away in 2014. And nothing was ever spoken about in regard to Freemasonry until I asked. And that wasn't until well into my adulthood. Well, my my grandparents were gone. The only The only way I even ever became aware of it is when my mom's dad died um the freemasons showed up and asked my grandmother is there anything she needed 
they uh, collected, apparently I am told, all his regalia or whatever he might have had. He wasn't very high up, I don't think. He was like in the metal trade, like a tin guy. But they collected whatever it was, books or whatever he had around. And I think they actually paid for the uh, part of the collection of the body and the processing, uh, which was a cremation, as far as I know. And that was the first time I ever became aware of anything like that. And then again, going through this house, which was my grandparents' house, then my parents' house, there were a few Freemasonic books laying around. But other than that, it's a strange thing. You would think that if dads, were involved in a thing, they might say to their son, hey, I'm involved in this thing, <laughs> both you and me, none of that. Anyhow, let's jump in. So the mainstream definition, Freemasonry or Masonry, refers to fraternal organizations that trace their origins to the local guilds of stonemasons that from the end of the 13th century regulated the qualifications of stonemasons and their interaction with authorities and clients. Current mainstream Freemasonry states, one of the oldest social and charitable organizations in the world, Freemasonry's roots lie in the traditions of the medieval stonemasons who built our cathedrals and castles. Our ceremonies are based around three principles that are still taught in our ceremonies today. Look after those less fortunate, improve yourself, and live life well so as to be remembered for the right reasons. Well, that all sounds pretty reasonable. Here's a weird thing that I will add in. And I know you know a lot more about Masons than I do. I knew that when we first met, you had been going through it. I think you and I, we got a book. Remember way back, I don't even think we'd been working together that long. We got that book that was one of the earliest supposedly about Masons published by Masons. But here's a weird thing. So you're citing this weird place in time where they are citing the 13th century. They're talking about the supposed roots of this when people actually cut stone. And that's a whole other episode on its own. They had all these skills, all this knowing that somehow they magically came to them out of a cloud because the dark ages were supposedly right there. So don't ask me how all that works. But in the movie Rollerball, they make a underhanded, purposeful comment to mark this period of time. And I think it relates to what you just read here. In Rollerball, the guy, the main character goes to the water computer, which is has everything in the world on it. And the scientist immediately tells him, I don't remember if it was the 12th or the 13th century, but the first thing he does is informs him, oh, we lost the 13th century. Oh, no one will be looking for that anyhow. And right this period of time that you just cited is of interest in my eyes. It's a line. It's a divider. Uh, something occurred there. To me, it's about what we know of history and what we don't, but it clearly relates, as you just read, to masonry. And then, then you got to ask the question, when someone says the 12th century, are they talking about the, you know, there's that whole thing, but anyhow. A Masonic lodge is said to be built on three pillars. The following is taken from a Masonic newsletter. Those three pillars that support a Masonic lodge are wisdom, strength, and beauty. This is, of course, metaphorical, but it is quite a coincidence that the English name for the deity is comprised of the initials of the Hebrew words for wisdom, strength, and beauty, Gomer, Oz, and Dabar. Wisdom, the left-hand pillar of mercy, is an active pillar and representative of alchemical fire, which is the principle of spirituality, often called the pillar of Yakin. It is a masculine pillar and relates to our mental energy, our loving-kindness, 
and our creative inspiration as we traverse it up the Kabbalistic tree through the Sephirot. Strength is the right-hand pillar and takes the form of severity, shaped into the alchemical symbol of water. It can represent darkness, but it is a passive symbol that is feminine in nature and called the Pillar of Boaz. Upon it, we find the points of our thoughts and ideas, our feelings and emotions, and the physicality of our physical experience, our sensations, each an aspect of its Kabbalistic progression. Beauty, then, takes on the role of synthesis of the two, the Pillar of Mildness. It is upon this pillar that the novitiate is transformed through his progressive states as he progresses. The central pillar of beauty is representative of Jehovah, the tetragrammaton which represents deity itself upon which our crown of being resides, balanced through feeling and emotion from our foundation of justice and mercy, which springs from our link to the everyday world. So, what you just read here about the two pillars was where I initially started to pay attention to what was going on at any level in Freemasonry because I recognized that they were mirroring off or encoding or metaphorically referring to the equinoxes. The left-hand pillar in this case, I think, would be the spring and the right hand would be the fall equinox. And so they're telling you, oh, well, this one's about our ideas and feelings and emotions. Um, think of all the things that happen near the fall equinox, 9-11 and all these other things. But this is a pretty big claim right here. You just read that the Masons claim the reason we use the word God is because of the Hebrew words, the letters taken from each for wisdom, strength, and beauty, Gomer Oz Dabar, spelling the word God. And what's ironic about all this at the top, as you get in where they're saying, well, these pillars are important. It's foundational to what we do. And it's about wisdom, strength, and beauty. And these guys come from builders and look at all the, the terrible buildings. They've gotten worse as we've gone through every couple of decades. No beauty, I guess strength could be argued, um, but they're boxes and rectangles. Uh, and the Masonic order, you will find them all over the place within the building industry. As a matter of fact, when I was still working in the corporate world, I worked for multi-million dollar construction companies and all the upper guys were Masons and that. It was mostly for business purposes as far as I could tell. But I don't know, Jason, have you ever done any work to see that Joaquin and Boaz are also or are often used as representational of the equinox? Everything to do with Freemasonry, as we are going to get into, you're going to see is astrotheological in nature. Yeah. I mean, it's even in the word, the May suns or the sun in May. And if we go back, this is one of the things we've lost in the modern era, and it's our connection to the natural world. You know, I just saw a thing, I can't even believe it, about the 80s. And they said, oh, in this year, I think it was 1987, we had to add a second because the very accurate cesium clock had to correct for the not so accurate sun. Not even kidding you here. In the real world, that everything that is going on now is trying to get us to forget about the natural world where truth resides, there are four points which encase everything, everything that will happen in our world. And that is equinoxes and that is solstices. And we'll get into it more as we go along. But anything we talk about here, we're not going to be far from the sun, are we, Jason? Even the deity. 
No. As I said, everything you're going to see is completely relevant to things that you're going to see in the sky. Why don't they just say it? Anyhow. Here are a few more terms to keep in mind when considering things about Freemasonry. Profane means someone who is not a Mason. The word is derived from the Latin pro, meaning before, and phanum, which means temple. Thus, someone profane is one who is outside the temple or uninitiated. According to Freemasons, this term, when used in a Masonic context, should not be taken with offense at all, as this is not the intention behind it. The term Cowan is used as any individual who would represent themselves as a Freemason but never join the fraternity. The term eavesdropper would be for someone who is a non-Mason who might be listening in on a lodge meeting or Masonic business. All right. Well, you know, they can claim whatever they want. We're calling you guys that aren't a part of this profane and women, but don't be insulted by, well, I'm sorry, words have meaning and there's a negative connotation. As a matter of fact, as negative connotation goes, uh, the idea of being profane is a pretty strong diminishing word when aimed at somebody. And for one thing, if in fact you want to act like large groups of people are profane because they don't know what you know, then in a way you're responsible because you could offer up what you know or invite them in to what you know, and they wouldn't be profane. But also the word Cowan I found in a lot of the old things that I wrote, I guess it used to be a thing. And the Masons would claim, oh, someone's trying to infiltrate and act, but they also use this word. And I know this certainly from research that I've done of people who it's a term that was used to down people who began to know too much about what was going on in the Masonic halls. They would call those people from one Mason to another a Callum. Are you a traveling man? A question you might hear one Mason asking another. From a mainstream Masonic website, a master Mason is a traveler from west to east, as east is where the sun comes up, hence the source of light. This is why the master sits in the east, because it is the source of light. Thus being a traveling man represents our journey from darkness to Masonic light or enlightenment. We traveled symbolically when we were raised to the sublime degree of Master Mason. Remember the words, it will be necessary for you to travel, and the condition of the road we would have to travel. In Masonry, we are told to seek the light. Light in Masonry is knowledge, and from that knowledge comes information and understanding. So there seems to be some confusion, and I'm sure you'll get to it, but here they're referring to a Master Mason. Is that, can we parallel that to 33rd? three degrees or something like that? Or is Master Mason a moniker that is, you know, awarded on its own, uh, independent of what degree might be? Uh, Master Mason is the third degree. You are a Master Mason once you complete the three degrees of your home lodge, your mother lodge, your blue lodge, and we'll explain this a little bit more later. There are three degrees that you go through. Once you complete the third one, you are a Freemason. The other degrees that you're referring to are continuations you can choose to go on, but many Masons don't do that. What I notice about this is all the things that I've read from different supposed spiritual organizations in the world, they're traveling against, they're going from west to east. Uh, As everybody knows, the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west and in all the oriental spiritual traditions and everything else, the things that they do or teach 
are mostly traveled east to west. So I noticed they're going against the grain here. From the paper, Egyptian Mysteries in Modern Freemasonry by Henry Ridgely Evans, 1903. An interesting question now presents itself. What relationship, if any, do the Egyptian mysteries bear to Freemasonry? Dr. Mackey, a well-known writer on Masonic themes, in an examination of the analogies between the ancient mysteries and the rites of modern Freemasonry, lays particular stress upon the identity of design and method in the two systems as illustrated by the division into steps, classes, or degrees to which both were subjected. These lustration, meaning purification or preparation, initiation, and perfection. The old charges are nearly all unanimous in claiming Egypt as the birthplace of the art of masonry or mystery. How far the legends of the craft are to be relied upon in this regard is a matter for learned investigation. The author Hecathorn is not very partial to the fraternity, but he says, The mysteries, as they have come down to us and are still perpetuated in a corrupted and aimless manner in Freemasonry, have chiefly an astronomical bearing. A hundred or more works have been written to prove that Freemasonry is the lineal descendant of the mysteries. Similar claims have been made in favor of the following systems or sects. 1. The Pythagoreans. 2. The Essenes. 3. The Roman Collegia. 4. The Coldes. 5. The Druids. 6. The Knights Templars. 7. The Rosicrucians. 8. The Medieval Cathedral Builders. The truth of the matter seems to be in favor of the latter, the medieval operative masons, who built those superb Gothic edifices such as the cathedrals of Cologne, Reims, Strasbourg, Notre Dame, and Westminster Abbey. Originally an operative institution, Freemasonry became a speculative society to promote the practice of the moral, fraternal, and charitable principles which had characterized the old organization. Almost like they are propping everything they are on something they are not. You know what I mean, Jason? They, you know, these beautiful, some of the most beautiful things we can see in the world, like Notre Dame and other things. Someone built those and they had knowledge that I don't think is even around anymore. Technically, could we build them? Probably. But could someone design them to encode and be in sync with the natural laws and everything that goes into them? And so here we have people who are just speculative. So I would ask, is there a difference between an organization who can actually physically cut stones, make the statues, make the blueprints, create these beautiful things, and then another organization which does none of that called speculative? Um, And I think that's really where the perversion starts to come in, because clearly the energies of the original operative masons, they were building things and they presumably had ancient knowledge and presumably they were doing it on the tail of the so-called, you know, dark era or the time we're told no one could read, write, You know, everything was in the gutter and somehow these people knew how to build these buildings I'm just saying, isn't that really where the aberration of it all starts to come in? So instead of the energies built into knowing all these old methods and things and building beautiful things, they start doing something else. And as we know now, that something else has not been that helpful. And we run into the same problem all the time because mostly the truther portions of the internet 
have a dim view of Freemasonry. And if someone is a Mason, they automatically have a dim view of them. And I'll say it again. uh, Your next door neighbor is not working for the new world order knowingly. But if you go up to the top of Freemasonry and read the works of Albert, Albert Pike and others like that, yeah, man, these people are a problem. Many noted scholars who were well-versed in ancient religions and occult philosophies were initiated into Freemasonry in the 17th and 18th centuries. Perhaps these students introduced the theosophic symbols of the Neoplatonists, Kabbalists, Gnostics, and medieval Rosicrucians into the craft. There is authority for the support of such a belief, says the author Gould from History of Freemasonry, page 26. According to Mackey, an instance of the transmutation of Gnostic talismans into Masonic symbols by a gradual transmission through alchemy, Rosicrucianism, and medieval architecture is afforded by a plate in the Azoth Philosophorum of Basil Valentine, the Hermetic philosopher who flourished in the 17th century. This plate, which is hermetic in its design but is full of Masonic symbolism, represents a winged globe inscribed with a triangle within a square, and on it reposes a dragon. On the latter stands a human figure of two hands and two heads, surrounded by the sun, the moon, and five stars, representing the seven planets. One of the heads is that of a male, the other of a female. The hand attached to the male part of the figure holds the compasses, that to the female a square. The square and compasses thus distributed appear to have convinced Dr. Mackey that originally a phallic meaning was attached to these symbols, as there was to the point within the circle, which in this plate also appears in the center of the globe. Quote, the compasses held by the male figure would represent the male generative principle, and the square held by the female, the female productive principle. The subsequent interpretation given to the combined square and compasses was the transmutation from the hermetic talisman to the Masonic symbol. Right. I mean, so yeah, we live in a dual world. There's two genders. Anyone can go read the seven hermetic principles. But, you know, one thing we could look at here is this is all symbolized over a globe. And I would add this, if that's a misdescription of our world, then what does that tell us? Anyhow, let's keep going. Operative Freemasonry is considered the craftsmen of centuries ago who actually worked with stone. The allegorical Freemasonry that is what is practiced in lodges now is what is called speculative from an official Freemason site. What is speculative Freemasonry? Speculative Freemasonry, also known as accepted Masonry, the craft or simply Masonry, is a fraternal institution that seeks to provide its members with opportunities to improve their lives through the following means, the practice of esoteric initiatory rituals, the study of Masonic symbols, allegories, and myths, reverence for deity, tolerance for differing religious and political views, a commitment to high moral and ethical principles, warm fellowship, and service to our fellow human beings. It is called speculative to distinguish it from operative masonry, the trade of working with brick, stone, and mortar. The word speculative emphasizes the symbolic and allegorical nature of masonry, the fact that its rituals, emblems, and myth must be subjected to interpretation in order to reveal their deeper meanings. While certain moral interpretations are offered in Masonic rituals, those same rituals admonish masons 
to continually seek further illumination. You know, they list all these good things, you know, love and warmth to your fellow man and, you know, raise up your consciousness. But look at the state of the world right now. And again, I'll come back to it. Um, you're, you're, you're basing this whole organization on a place that had all this, I don't know if you want to call it a cult knowing. It is a cult knowing. And they built the most majestic buildings we have to look at in our world. And then they become something else. And so all that knowing gets rerouted to do other things than build things. And so even in your opening paragraph, Jason, where it's, you know, be kind to fellow man and all these things that are going on, how much of that do we actually see in the world right now? Very, very little, I would estimate. Stepping back to the paper we were just reading from, just how much was borrowed from older systems by modern scholars or how much was inherited from the guilds of operative masons is a mooted question. The old charges are silent on the subject of the secret work of the order. In those days, the esoteric part of the ritual was better kept. Many writers, however, have claimed that the operative masons of medieval times possessed no particular legends or symbols. The ceremony of initiation into a lodge was very simple, the candidate being taught nothing but a few trite ethical lessons and the grips and words whereby to make himself known to his fellow craftsmen when traveling from city to city in quest of work. From either standpoint, that of inheritance or late borrowing, much of the wisdom of the ancient temples of Egypt and Greece has undoubtedly filtered into the fraternity, although it has been sadly misunderstood and misinterpreted by Masons in general. The esoteric student, however, is able to draw aside the veil of Isis and discover the true meaning of the symbols and legends of the craft. General Albert Pike, than whom no greater unfolder of Masonic mysteries ever lived, has done this to a great extent in his remarkable book, The Morals and Dogma of the Scottish Rite. Robert Hewitt Brown has performed a similar work in his interesting treatise, Stellar Theology, and Masonic astronomy. Brown emphasizes the astronomical origin of the rites of Freemasonry, tracing them back to the mysteries. Hecathorn supports this view. It is a very plausible one in some respects, particularly as regards the third degree of Masonry. In almost all of the mysteries of the ancient world, we see this solar allegory cropping out, the death and resurrection of the sun god, and the lessons to be drawn therefrom as regards the life of man. Are you familiar with this, uh, what they're calling a treatise here, Stellar Theology and Masonic Astronomy, Jason? Have you ever seen it? Uh, yes, I actually have a PDF of the book, and Jordan Maxwell used to tell people all the time how incredibly important it was. You're going to have to kick me a copy of that. I would like to dig in and see what I can find. But isn't it interesting that they're making the claim here that way back, there wasn't all this rigmarole to go through. They were basically initiated in. And why was that? Because they were like apprentices. They were going to learn from the people around them how to build, how to do the things they were doing. And again, there's a stark difference between men working with stone, building buildings, uh, the craftsmanship. Who can argue with the craftsmanship and the art and the hidden meanings that have gone into those buildings is a long way from whatever speculative people spend their time doing. But I would definitely like to get a copy of this, Jason. And um, I've never even heard of it until I saw this bullet point. This is what Masons say if you want to know how to join Freemasonry. 
Among millions of Masons, not one was lawfully invited to apply for membership. Our code of conduct prevents it. Thus, no faithful Mason can invite you. A Mason can obtain a petition for the degrees of Masonry for you, but you must ask for it, and for good reason. You must first ask yourself if you're suitably prepared to enter the gentle craft of Masonry, to become a brother in the world's most exclusive fraternal order. Few men are intellectually or spiritually prepared to understand or appreciate even the more apparent meanings of Masonry. Do you reflect on the nature of man's existence and your obligations to God, your family, and yourself? If such ethical and moral questions hold little interest for you, then you will gain little benefit from the teachings of the craft. But if you seek a more meaningful quality of life, and the spirit of charity and good fellowship which flow from it, then Freemasonry has much to offer. We want you to know what we believe, how we act, and what we do. Then, should you become a Mason, to be proud to be our brother and to participate in our work. Only those who desire membership because of their favorable impression of us should seek a petition. That's why you must ask yourself. Well, my first question is, what is the work? What is your work? that you're referring to here? Can someone tell me what the work is? Anyhow, I think maybe we answered where we started, why my grandfather apparently never had this conversation with his son or your dad to you. Uh, Apparently it's against the rules. Yeah, that's pretty much what it comes down to. You are supposed to go to them. According to the Masonic Kentucky Monitor 14 and 15 by Henry Pertle, all antiquity believed in a mediator or redeemer by means of whom the evil principle was to be overcome and the supreme deity reconciled to his creatures. The belief was general that he was to be born of a virgin and suffer a painful death. The Hindus called him Krishna, the Chinese Kunsi, the Persians Sosyosh, the Scandinavians Balder, the Christians Jesus, the Masons Hiram. So, we will go over the legend of the Freemasons' savior figure, Hiram Abiff. So, when I was young, you never saw much of anything that was a Masonic writing, or at least that's the way I remember it. Do you remember, Jason? It must have been like 2007. YouTube was relatively new, and someone got their hands on a Masonic Bible that replaced all of the Christian you know, the Christian triad, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost with the Egyptian stuff. Do you remember that? What a big deal that video was for quite some time? No, no, I don't. So it was on, it was filmed on the street, if I remember correctly. And it was like, even the first time I had seen a Masonic Bible that opens up with all the Egyptian symbology. Anyhow, it's neither here nor there, but um, it goes to show the information age really changed what we know and what we can see of this organization. Because when I was younger, I think it was hard to even get your hands on a Masonic Bible. Anyone can order one off Amazon now. Well, you can find them used as I did on eBay. And they usually come from someone who was a Mason and probably passed on. Did you ever go through it? Is the Egyptian symbology in there? Yeah, it's in there. Mm -hmm. And they talk a lot about the Temple of Solomon and things like that. You know, all the all these things. What's funny is how many things are lost or unknown, you know, over and over. Oh, we lost a word. Oh, we lost. We don't know. Where'd you come from? We're not sure. Over and over. The Blue Lodge, degrees one through three, 
or the Mother Lodge, where a Freemason will attain his first three degrees, is centered upon the legend of Hiram Abiff. The Scottish and York rites base themselves largely upon the Hiramic legend that follows after Hiram Abiff's resurrection. The first three degrees are called Entered Apprentice, Fellowcraft, and Master Mason. Many Masons will stop right there, for after retaining the degree of Master Mason, the initiate is considered a full Freemason. However, if a brother of the craft wants to continue his studies, he may choose to follow either the Scottish or York rites to attain further degrees. So, would you estimate that masonry is still pretty big in the world? Like, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people are masons? Do you think that's still correct? Yes. So, you might think that with what's going on in the world and the banks about to make a run on full fledged slavery with CBDCs, programmable currency, you might think that an organization who states that they're in this for their fellow man and good and to, you know, be moral and all this, you think an organization of this size might actually stand up and make a difference because of their size, because they're everywhere. They're in every city, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think that an organization like this could not go along with the coming push for basically slavery? Yeah, you'd think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> you would think that. I'm just saying, what what is the work here, guys? And I know, you know, I can I've read and people have told me, but really, what what is being accomplished here? Has anyone in this organization noticed that there's a push for a one world order? Did anyone notice that there used to be two buildings in New York that is now one world? Is anyone noticing that the central banks are about to push a digital currency, which is the highest form of slavery I can imagine. Uh, are you guys noticing this? Because you have a lot of members. You could probably stand pretty firmly against this kind of slavery. Just saying. This legend loosely has its historical basis from the Bible in 1 Kings 7 and 2 Chronicles 2. The legend goes as follows. Hiram Abiff, a widow's son from Tyre, skillful in the working of all kinds of metals, was employed to help build King Solomon's temple. The legend tells us that one day, whilst worshipping the Grand Architect of the Universe, which you'll often see as G-A-O-T-U, within the Holy of Holies, Hiram was attacked by three ruffians called Jubela, Jubelo, and Jabalum and known collectively as the Jews, spelled J-U-W-E-S, who demanded the master's word, that is, the secret name of God. The first ruffian, named Jubela, struck Hiram across the throat with a 24-inch gauge. The second ruffian, named Jubelo, struck Hiram's breast over the heart with a square. The third ruffian, named Jubelum, struck Hiram upon the forehead with a gavel, whereupon Hiram fell dead. His blood, therefore, was shed within the temple. Hiram, having been killed, was carried out the east gate of the temple and buried outside Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Early the following morning, King Solomon visited the temple and found the workmen in confusion because no plans had been made for the day's work. Fearing evil had befallen Hiram, King Solomon sent out twelve fellow craft masons to look for Hiram. King Solomon himself accompanied the three who journeyed towards the east. Having finally located the grave of Hiram, Solomon and his fellow masons exhumed the body. 
A search was made for the master's word, the name of God, but all that was found was the letter G. Finding the word lost, a lament went up. O Lord, my God, is there no help for the widow's son? They first took hold of Hiram's body with the Boaz grip of the first degree. This failed to achieve its purpose. They then repositioned their hold upon Hiram's body using the Yakin grip of the second degree. This also failed to accomplish its purpose. Solomon finally raised Hiram from the dead by using the third degree grip of the master mason, the points of fellowship, and by uttering in Hiram's ear the phrase Mahabone. Okay, <laughs> there's a lot here. Um, of course, there were 12 fellow craft masons that headed out with the uh, supposed king. But isn't it interesting that the grand architect uh, is basically goat misspelled with the word you on the tail of it. But what strikes me every time I see this account is Hiram Abiff is known to work with all kinds of metals. And in my mind, that always makes a relationship to, uh, to Bulkane right? The whole Tubal Cain story, uh, I think, attributes all metal craft, so many crafts, with Tubal Cain. But clearly, there's a lot stashed in the little tale you just told. Yes, and I don't believe it is supposed to be considered historically accurate. Well, even finding proof of the temple or the king referenced um, is still an issue. Nonetheless, there seems to be quite a bit of information hidden in these vowels and consonants. Hiram Abiff has been raised from the dead. However, he soon leaves the legend, for he has been ushered into a more glorious existence. Solomon is left to continue building the temple. Many decisions have to be made. Solomon first selects seven expert masons to guard the temple, before holding a requiem for the departed Hiram Abiff. Solomon then appoints seven judges to hand out justice to the workmen building the temple. Five superintendents are installed to oversee the continuing building of the temple. Solomon then focuses upon apprehending the assassins of Hiram Abiff. He appoints nine masters who begin the search for the assassins. The first assassin is discovered asleep. He is stabbed in the heart and head, then decapitated. Solomon hears a report that the other two assassins have fled to Gath, the birthplace of Goliath. Solomon selects 15 masters, including the original nine, who apprehend them. They are placed in prison and then executed. Solomon rewards 12 of the masters by making them governors over the 12 tribes of Israel. Solomon finally appoints a builder by the name of Adoniram as the sole successor to Hiram Abiff. Adoniram becomes chief architect of the temple, which is finally completed. With no blueprints, right? Because that all got lost with Hiram. But again, everything you just read has a lot of information stashed in it. Um, it jumps out. The, the first guy, they basically just whacked him in his sleep, right? There's no, no trial going on here. But the other two apparently go to jail first. But again, so much allegory and simile and metaphor and every other kind of elusive way to communicate is stashed in uh, all this. And I wonder, is there a certain level of masonry when someone just sits you down and unravels it all? Uh, again, keep in mind that everything is allegorical to something else and all of this gets wrapped up in the different degrees. 
Well, there's a lot of people, truthers, particularly in the health side of things that will start to talk instantly about the temple is your body and the Christos, the oil, and that aspect, which is absolutely encoded into the Bible. And to some degree, it must be here as well, I would, uh, I would suggest. And in some regard, that's supposed to be the work that they're doing, is that you're supposed to be improving yourself. Right. I agree. But again, uh, has, has this massive organization taken any time to look out at the world right now? There's a lot of members could probably make some changes in this world if you set your mind to it. And the reason I'm making these tongue-in-cheek claims is because not only do I not think they're pushing against it, I think at the highest levels, they've been instructed to help it along. Well, if I had to guess, but I couldn't possibly be certain, nobody in the lodge, at least on the lower levels, got handed down the message to not take the vax. There's a good point. There's a very good point. And that goes straight to the window dressing idea, right? So many areas online hate on the Masons, and it's like they've given them their whipping boy, right? People have called the blue-collared worker, the average Mason, as window dressing to the organization. There's a lot of people who've written about this cover. It's a cover, and it provides a scapegoat as well. The legend doesn't stop here. Solomon begins to build a temple of justice upon the site of a temple built by Enoch. Remember, this is Masonic legend, not biblical truth, who placed within the temple a stone bearing the name of God. Adoniram, the chief architect, and two other workmen begin building the temple of justice, only to discover Enoch's stone. Solomon and Hiram of Tyre, the grandmasters of Freemasonry, have little choice but to initiate the three workmen into the secrets of the craft. All three are taught the correct pronunciation of the name of God. The Temple of Solomon was destroyed around 586 BC. The name of God was once again lost. Jerusalem was taken captive, and the Babylonian captivity began. The captives lived in Babylon for 70 years until King Cyrus of Persia, who was a master of Freemasonry, had a dream. He dreamt that a lion appeared to him, saying, Liberty to the captives. Under the lion's direction, Cyrus proclaimed the release of the Jews, and this time it is spelled J-E-W-S. He ordered them to construct a second temple under his guidance. Many of the Jews, especially Nehemiah and Ezra, were initiates of the Masonic Mysteries. They directed all the Masons within the midst of the Jews to make the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem with their swords by their sides and trowels in their hands. Okay, so, I mean, I'll ask it again. So, the new guy... Ado Niram, the chief architect, um, how's he building this? The blueprints were lost. But we should harp. It's The tale is not the important part. It, it's, it's what is buried in the tale that is the big deal here. So much has been written by so many people about the enslaving, hauling off to Babylon, the bringing back, the rebuilding of the temple. But very few people get it, Jason, that not only can they not really prove that there was ever a temple uh, in the way that you would expect it to be proved if there was, in fact, such a thing really in the world and not a metaphor for some other thing. Hint, hint, hint. The whole point I would make here, the whole thing about the temple is every Masonic lodge in the world is a representation of that supposed temple. 
uh, as a matter of fact, Sistine Chapel, believe it or not, is a representation of that temple. And the research that I've done, it wasn't, it was 40 some odd years, the temple that's being echoed back to all over the world and all these things that I just mentioned was only 40, 50 or something, not very long before it was torn down or lost or whichever story you want to go with. This temple that was here for such a short period of time has been echoed into the future in ways you can't even imagine. So it's very important for some reason. And as we wrap up our one, uh, my, my view on it, Jason, is because we're not really talking about a physical temple that can't actually be proved out. We're talking about a hidden message. And that hidden message has to do with the higher reaches of what a man or a woman can become spiritually. That's what I accept is probably correct. How about you? So even in this uh, writing of theirs, they say that this is Masonic legend, not biblical truth. And again, how much are you taking of the Bible as being literal history as opposed to also being stories and allegory? Right. And, you know, but what is it pointing to? And I think a big part of it is the human body aspect that so many people have covered. But this is a big deal, right? Um, When I did the research, I, I didn't even realize that the Sistine Chapel is standing in for this. So here you have an organization, the World Church, someone might say the Universal Catholic Church, which is supposedly all about Jesus, and they're doing Solomon's Temple, but nobody knows. And they're claiming in some of the writings that I read that even the Pope didn't know when it was Sixtus or I forget which Pope it is, but I'm not buying. How, how is that even possible? But then when you go to look at the artwork, very little of it, if any, was New Testament artwork. So this was a big deal. I think we can agree that this was a big deal. And it's not about the stories. It's about what's buried or allegorized or symbolically hidden in the stories. Anyhow, what do you want to add before we wrap up our one? So we have a little bit more of the Masonic legend to finish, and then we're going to get into a whole lot more about the degrees and things that uh, maybe the Freemasons don't necessarily want the profane discussing. But again, this was easy for me to find. It was right out there on the internet and in books and things like that. So I'm not sure how exactly they're going to react if they should know we're discussing this. But the truth is, I don't see a whole lot of secrets in here. Most of this is story and legends, and again, very astrotheological in nature. Well, that's why I'm going to take an interest. Please remember to send me the PDF. I will definitely dig into that. If it's as interesting as people are saying it is, maybe we'll do an episode on that later, because that's really where I, I have an interest, is in the, uh, the sky clock information. But it's pretty clear this stuff has lasted the test of time. It's been around a long time, even when it was made for one purpose, to build these amazing edifices. When that stopped, it became something else. And, you know, anytime you can tie it something to the Sistine Chapel or anything else, you know, it's a big deal to somebody out there. And we'll be covering that. Anyhow, this is where you shine, Jason. You've spent a lot of time researching these ideas. But that does bring hour one of episode 518 to a close. The first hour is free to everybody at pro777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode and they get access to all the forums, comments, and, uh, and the film Shoot the Moon. With that, we're going to prep up for hour two, and there's really a lot more to get in here. But as we prep up, I would like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. There it is, man. Cheers. 
is the enemy of knowing. Come.